Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Faithfulness. Second Timothy 2 verse 13 has always struck me as a very important Bible verse. I sometimes wonder why we don't preach on it more. The previous verse, verse 12, presents us with a contrast. If we endure, we will reign with him, we're told. And then in contrast, if we deny him, he also will deny us. So to deny him is the same as to apostatize. It's saying, you know, I once was a Christian, but I'm not a Christian now. I want nothing to do with Christ. If that's what we do, regardless of our past experiences, Christ is determined to deny us. But then comes verse 13, and it's a surprising verse. It speaks about God's faithfulness, and we would think, given the contrast that has been before, that it should read, if we're faithless, he will be faithless to us. But if you know anything about good God-centered biblical theology, you'll know it can't say that, for to charge God with faithlessness is to question his attributes, his essential nature. Verse 13 says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that is the hope of every Christian. I may be inconsistent, God's not. I may be hot and cold, God's not. I may change my mind, God doesn't. And that means that once God has made a promise and claimed me as his own for eternity, he's never going to renege on his word, regardless of how inconsistent I am. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that I'm going to live faithlessly, for the heart of the true convert loves God above all things. But the promise is real. God never promises something and then loses interest in what he has said. He remains faithful. I think as we come to the 14th chapter of Exodus, that famous chapter, that it's the faithfulness of God that's on full display. Let's see what we can learn. We start with something that looks very different depending on your perspective. Israel, after leaving Egypt, seems to be in trouble. But as I say, that depends on your perspective. Exodus 14, 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. It needs to be said at the outset that the places that are mentioned here, well, we simply don't know where they are today. And furthermore, I think it unlikely that we're ever going to learn where these places were. The ancient texts that are available to us today only lists the large populated regions. So these places were surely out of the way places. And it's essential for Israel to stay away from populous regions for a number of reasons. I mean, Israel was two million people. And if they would have approached a populous region, that would have created panic. And so they stay in places where their flocks can graze out of the way of others or as we might say today, out in the boonies. And that being said, the words of verse 2 are quite significant. Notice again, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth. That seems to mean that what happens in verse 2 is a reversal of direction. 
They're going in one direction, and then suddenly God tells them, go back into the opposite direction. And furthermore, Moses is not lost. It's God himself who's giving instructions to go in one direction and then turn around. And then we're told why. It would appear that wherever Israel is at this point, that Pharaoh has employed spies and scouts or something like that to keep a constant watch on them and report back. And we've got to imagine a scene in which Pharaoh receives daily reports. And at this point, he may not have known what to do with the information he was receiving, but he was going to be kept up to date. He was not going to be in the dark. But of course, God knows what Pharaoh is doing, and God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart yet one more time and get glory for himself. We're going to see before we finished our study today that this was necessary for the sake of Israel. Of course, God does all things for his glory, but it's also true that it's necessary for God's people to notice his glory. For if we don't, we'll never develop into a people of faith. Hence, God's glory is good for God, but it's also good for us. But God will glorify himself yet one more time, and that's extremely bad for Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't know that yet. He remains, in spite of his humiliation and defeat, an extremely proud and arrogant man. This attitude will be turned against him. And so the spies report, Israel has completely reversed course. They seem to be traveling without a goal or an objective. They're going in one direction and then in the opposite. They don't know what they're doing. Now, it's been the subject of a great deal of debate as to where they were. And furthermore, the text doesn't tell us how long they've been gone. You know, it might be a matter of several days, maybe several weeks, maybe a month or more. We don't know. But as I read through this text, it seems like some time has elapsed much more than a few days. And that leads me to conclude that either they've gone down the eastern side of Egypt going south, or if you think that Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula, but rather it's in Arabia, as the minority do, then they would be wandering about in the Sinai Desert itself. But wherever they were, Pharaoh says the wilderness has shut them in. They're making tragic mistakes, and now they're locked into a strategic nightmare. Imagine Pharaoh hearing that from a messenger. His advisors are around him. They're discussing the implication of what that turn of events actually means. These people should have gone north to Canaan, and they haven't. And in my estimation, they've traveled deeply into the Sinai wilderness. Exodus 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, most modern readers find that response almost inexplicable. I mean, having been devastated by 10 plagues, the last of them resulting in the death of the firstborn. I mean, we'd think the last thing Pharaoh and his servants would be doing is rethinking the release of Israel. Now, when we think that, we miss several important mitigating events. First, let's assume some time has passed, maybe a month, perhaps even more. Let's assume also that in time, the Egyptian economy is reeling from the effects of the plague, and they're now coming to terms with not just the the possibility of famine, but also with the dramatic effects of the change in labor status. Things aren't getting done, and up to this point, no one knows how to fix the labor shortage. But there's another important factor here. Remember the Egyptian religion. Their gods and goddesses are of a different variety than what we think today. You see, because their gods were associated with nature and because nature often appears fickle, 
So also the Egyptian gods are portrayed as fickle. The gods were arbitrary, they were capricious, they were quick to change their actions. Sometimes the gods were in competition with other gods. But the one thing the gods were not was faithful. The gods sometimes lost interest in previous actions. They sometimes lost interest in people, and they sometimes lost interest in the people that they had protected on a previous occasion. And given that worldview, that view of religion and the gods, it's not inconceivable that Pharaoh may have believed that the God who had devastated Egypt and had taken Israel out might by now have become frustrated with them and had lost interest in this project and was now moving on to something else. And that might explain what was happening as Israel is seemingly wandering in circles and making no progress. So it seemed reasonable that their God has now abandoned them. There's so much that could be said here. I mean, how many of us, when we're not making the progress that we think we should be making, actually find ourselves taking Pharaoh's perspective on things? But when we do that, we should remember the wonderful hymn from Henry Francis Light. You know, he wrote, change and decay and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. I mean, those words accurately reflect Malachi 3 verse 6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God never changes. He ever remains faithful. When God makes a promise to Abraham that he will give his descendants the promised land, he never changes, even though that promise is now 500 years ago. And furthermore, if God said to Moses that he would now at this time lead Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land, God would not lose interest in Israel. And even further, as we're going to see, the people of Israel, whom God is leading out, are indeed a faithless people. In a short while, we'll see their faithlessness on full display. But as Paul would later write to Timothy, even if we're faithless, God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Or to put it another way, he never acts contrary to his nature. Pharaoh had no worldview that would even lead him to consider that glorious truth. All he knows, Israel is wandering around in the wilderness without a sense of direction. God has forgotten them. We've lost our labor force. Our economy is in ruins. It's time to take action. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We notice that once receiving the news that Israel's wandering in circles, 
Egypt comes to the conclusion that they've acted rashly. What have we done? We've lost their services. But if we act now and act decisively, we can rectify this. We don't have to see the ruin of Egypt's economy, and we're going to appear strong before the Egyptian people. Clearly, a course of action is called for. Exodus 14, 6-9. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen in his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So the Egyptian military were a professional military, and they're ready to act with speed. We also notice that the first thing Pharaoh does is prepare his chariot along with 600 chosen chariots, which must mean these are the chariots from the elite unit, the ones who had distinguished themselves both for their courage and their unusual skill. And along with that, he takes other chariots. And there the number are not given. However many there were, it must have been an impressive sight. And if you're on the receiving end of such a force, it would indeed be very fearful. You know, it's hard for moderns to appreciate chariots. You know, chariots were weapons that were effectively deployed. Thousands of them would cut through infantry or foot soldiers with ease, and their speed was considerable, as well as their maneuverability and also the power they exhibited. Depending on the chariots, a great many of them would include two men. One would drive, the other would either shoot arrows or wield weapons. In open ground, such as what would await Pharaoh in the desert, they would be devastating. Now, this matter of chariots would become a contentious matter later in Israel. See, in Deuteronomy 17, it sets out rules for the future king of Israel, along with the kind of military he may command. So Deuteronomy 17:16 says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire them. You know, only horses are mentioned here, but we would assume that these horses were used to pull chariots. You know, wealthy nations could afford this kind of military hardware, but Israel was not to acquire many. And one of the reasons is explained later. In the time of battle, Israel was to amass a powerful army, but that army was always to rely on God. David kept the command, Solomon violated it. You know, I mentioned that here only to reinforce the idea of a very powerful Egyptian military bearing down on Israel. And no doubt, by now, Israel had some means of defending themselves. After all, they were numbered by the amount of men that could go to war, and that number was, you know, 600,000. So we might think they'd have put up a stiff fight. But the chariots of Egypt would more than be sufficient to counter the Hebrew defenses. The battle, that would turn into a great victory for Egypt. And furthermore, if I'm right, that by now there's some distance between Israel and Egypt, those horses would make up that distance with speed. Now then, our text makes sure that we're clear on a point that has been repeated over and over again. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord had determined to get glory for himself and also to make that glory known to Israel. It was God's determined will that Pharaoh meet Israel with chariots. And you know, one of the reasons God's determined to make this encounter happen, that's spelled out later in Deuteronomy 20 verse one, which says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. 
For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That is, in the future. When Israel's locked in battle, they must not forget this day. This is going to be a visual reminder that the victory in battle does not go to the strong, it goes to the Lord. They'll have to remember that God does not forsake his people. It's an important lesson. Since God is faithful, it should be remembered that when some future crisis occurs in which we've seen God act in a similar way in the past, that we need to remember God's faithful. He doesn't become weary of rescuing people. Indeed, since he has made promises to his people, he will, without ever failing, continue to act on his promises. So let's go back to our text. The Egyptians are pursuing Israel. Exodus 14, 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this that we said to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know, the fact that Israel greatly feared. Well, it's not hard to understand. I mean, this time the geography of the place where they're located has hemmed them in. There's nowhere to go. The Red Sea's at their backs. The Egyptian army is approaching them from the front. In a moment like this, when all seems lost, you know, it's so very hard to remember both the promises of God and the miracles that he's performed in Egypt. You know, one doesn't take the time to go over all these things that one has learned about the attributes of God, especially his faithfulness. You know, when there's an imminent crisis ahead, you know, I, I for myself understand fear. You know, had I been in their place, I believe I would have been overcome by fear as well. Then the next thing that happens is also not hard to understand. The last part of verse 11 says, they cried out to God. That is, at this moment, they knew that only God could save them. You know, all of that's good. But how do we make sense of the next section? They say to Moses, because as before, when Pharaoh demanded that we make bricks without straw, you know, remember they were careful not to blame God, they blamed Moses. See, the man appointed by God is always easier to blame than God himself. And here's the first thing they say. You brought us out here to die a most horrible death in this wilderness. Were there no graves in Egypt? The meaning behind this is simple. We'd rather die as slaves in Egypt than die as men fighting for our freedom in the wilderness. Now, don't be too surprised because a great many other people think the same way. Let's look at the second thing they say. You know, we told you at the outset that we didn't want to leave Egypt. Go to the land God promised to give us. And more so, we consistently said that to you, Moses, and we kept insisting. We wished you'd never come to us, bringing us the, you know, the news of the promises of God. What's so wrong with being a lifelong slave than dying in bondage and also letting our children and grandchildren have the same experience? Now, of course, if they had thought it through, they might have come to the conclusion that just perhaps the Egyptians were coming to kill their leaders and then lead the whole nation back into slavery, and they'd get their wish. You know, years ago, I led a Bible study for, you know, people who weren't Christians but were considering the faith. You know, most of them came to the Lord, but there was one man, and he was once quite agitated. He said, I never asked to be born. God imposed my birth on me, and now he's asking me to repent, and again, he's imposing his will on me. How dare he, he said. You know, I found that amusing as if God needed to ask his permission to create him. But this is the attitude here. It's as if Israel is saying, 
We didn't ask to be the promised people of God with an immortal destiny. We'd be slaves rather than that. Exodus 14, 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you will only have to be silent. It's an amazing response. Just knowing my personality, which by the way, is thoroughly sinful in this regard, but I think had I been Moses, I would have said, great, you want slavery? Go ahead and have it. Uh, How wrong it would have been to have that response. For as Paul said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. If he made promises to us, he will keep them. And so Moses is speaking for the faithful God. Fear not, says God. Even when we allow fear to replace our faith, and even when we say things that are inappropriate for a man or a woman of God to say, stand firm, says God. Don't let these present trials trouble you. You know, we might say, you know, get a grip, get a hold of yourself, stop reacting, start trusting, be a man or woman of faith in the day of battle and in the time of trouble. And then, of course, comes the promise. These chariots are descending on you, sure enough, with the elite of the Egyptian military. But you're only going to see them for a short period of time. God will be your great warrior, and he's going to fight for you. All you have to do now is watch him and marvel at the greatness of your God or the faithfulness of your God. All of that is really quite overwhelming. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I'm wondering, why do you think it is we struggle so much sometimes with uh, trusting that God is faithful? Yeah, (laughs) it's because... Uh, we have, you know, we have trained our minds uh, to trust in the events around us. Is everything going good? I'm good. Is everything going bad? I'm bad. So we haven't said, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether things are good or bad. God is faithful. So not having trained ourselves in everything to rely on the faithfulness of God, we've trained ourselves to rely on what our eyes see. And because of that, when we reach the, you know, the, the, these, these moments in our life, we are at the edge of all things. Um, if we've never trusted in the faithfulness of God, we're shocked and find ourselves struggling to do it then. Time to start to learn to do it now, don't you think? Let's trust in the faithfulness of God. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. 
To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.